This is Eve Lazarus. You're listening to Cold Case Canada, The Langley Murders. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. In 1974, Debbie and Vicky Rowe were living the dream. The sister act, Debbie 22 and Vicky just 17, had returned from Nashville, where they'd cut a country and western album called Soft, Sweet and Country. The record cover shows two beautiful young women, Vicky the brunette, Debbie the blonde, in a country setting, dressed in flowing dresses and holding floppy hats. The sisters had been singing together professionally for about five years. They participated in talent contests and sung at various nightclubs, long before they could legally buy a drink. Debbie and Vicky worked with George Calhoun, a local songwriter, and it was George who helped them get to Nashville. He backed up the girls at talent contests, wrote some of the material for an album, and sent a demo tape to Cherish Records. The record label liked the demo, and Debbie and Vicky flew to Nashville to record an album. Debbie wrote one of the songs, and she and Vicky collaborated on a few others. Their backup musicians were some of the best talent in country music at the time, Bobby Seymour, Steve Gibson, Buddy Emmons, and Charlie McCoy. McCoy had backed up artists such as Elvis Presley, Bob Dylan, and Johnny Cash, and he'd been inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2009. Debbie may have sung country, but she loved rock and roll. Her favourite bands were Backman Turner Overdrive in Chicago, and she loved Neil Young, a popular, beautiful girl. She was a runner-up for Miss Surrey in 1973. And then on February 22, 1975, the dream came crashing down. A family out for a walk in a rural area of Langley found Debbie's body just off a road. She'd been beaten, strangled and left to drown in six inches of water. Coroner Doug Jack described the killing as an enraged, frustrated attack. Langley City is roughly 55 kilometres from downtown Vancouver, about a 45-minute drive in light traffic. It's part of the Fraser Valley and Metro Vancouver and acts as a bedroom community for Vancouver. Langley is made up of large swaths of agricultural land, farms and wineries. It borders on Surrey and incorporates areas such as Aldergrove, Fort Langley and Brookswood. Debbie grew up in Surrey and Aldergrove and she was one of six kids. In 1975, they ranged in age from 5 to 23. Four months before she died, Debbie had moved out of her family's home to share an apartment in Langley City with her friend Kim Newman and Kim's dad. At 18, Kim was a few years younger than Debbie, 
but when they met, they quickly became friends because of their shared love of music. During the day, when work was available, Debbie was a flag girl for Traco Industries, a Vancouver construction company. But it wasn't full-time work, and both Debbie and Kim worked as cocktail waitresses at the OK Corral in New Westminster. On the night that she was killed, Debbie had worked a shift at the OK Corral. She'd asked Kim to drive into work with her, but Kim was booked for a babysitting job that night and told her she couldn't go into work. Debbie had borrowed Kim's clothes to wear to work that night, a black skirt, black nylons, black shoes, a red blouse and black vest. Kim now lives in Victoria, BC, and I interviewed her when I was writing Cold Case Vancouver back in 2015. I'm replaying some of that interview now, with Kim's permission. Debbie and I, we bonded because she's a harmony vocalist, and she did all the harmony, and Vicky did all the lead thing. I was just mesmerized by her voice. We talked a lot about singing, and I started hanging around with her, and she started hanging around with me, and that was kind of depth in my common ground. Why you know? did she move in with you, Kim? She just wanted to change the scenery. Mm-hmm. She had never moved out on her own, you know, so she just wanted to, I don't know, do her own thing or not live with her parents anymore. Or... What was she like? What do you remember about her? She was soft, sweet and country. She had such a kind heart. She's a very kind woman and proper. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. On the night Debbie died, she was driving home after finishing her shift at the OK Corral, somewhere between 2 and 2.30am. It would have been about a 35-kilometre drive from the bar in New West to her apartment in Langley. She stopped to get gas for a car and grabbed something to eat at a Denny's restaurant on King George Highway, which is now a Burger King. Debbie's car, a three-year-old blue Chevrolet Nova, was found parked and locked on a desolate section of the Fraser Highway called Fry's Corner. Her body was found seven kilometres away in the 7700 block of 204th Street in Langley. The Chevy was found pointing in the direction of Langley. Investigators found a footprint in the ground made by a size 9 shoe. 19-year-old Tony Medway was driving his friend Dale home to Langley in the early hours of February 22nd. They knew the Rowe family from when they had all lived in Surrey and they recognised Debbie's car parked on the side of the Fraser Highway. Here's Tony. We were driving down Fraser Highway 
you know, and I was taking him home. He lived out in Langley somewhere, too. And we had noticed her car on the side of the road because she had a little Chevelle or whatever it was. And we stopped and we looked and she wasn't in the car or anything. And we thought, oh, I wonder if she broke down, you know, and we'll keep an eye open for her because where he lived was kind of the way that she lived, too, out in Brookswood there. But we didn't see her on the way home, right? And then we never thought anything about it. And then the next day or, you know, so after that, we read that she'd been killed, right? And, uh, yeah, I've I've often thought about it. And, yeah, it's one of those things that uh, it's always kind of haunted me, too, that, that, that unsold thing, right? That's like, what happened? She was pretty smart. She wasn't a risque girl. She wasn't the kind of girl to run around with anybody or anything like that. She was pretty, you know, up and up, right? So she had to have known who it was or she had to have had a lot of trust in whoever picked her up. Had to have been abducted. And there was nothing up in that area at the time. There were, it was all bush, no development. Mm-hmm. You know, there were, you know, large acreage properties, right? Five acres, ten acre properties. So a lot of distance between all the houses. A lot of bare land between the houses and treed. A lot of bush. Police told the family that it was possible someone was following Debbie because she disappeared so quickly after her car broke down. They said that the motor wouldn't start and they believed that the car broke down and Debbie began hitchhiking and was picked up by the person who killed her. Here's Kim Newman talking about why she doesn't believe that that was possible. You know, I can remember telling the police the very same thing. Mm. I kept saying to them she would never have gotten in a car with a stranger. Mm. Never. You know, I just wouldn't even hear that mm. back then. I was just broken. She would not have stuck her thumb out and hitchhiked. And it would have had to have been someone that she recognized for her to get in a car with some guy. What was the area like where she was stopped? Was it residential or was it fairly out in the way? Or? Oh my God, it was so desolate, so dark where her car was and then it was pointing in the direction of Langley. She was heading home, but she didn't get that far. She only got to Fry's Corner, which is like where kids used to skate in the winter time because it would freeze and it was all like farmland. Had she had car trouble at all? That car was in really good shape and uh, I used to drive it and I always thought in my mind that somebody put something in her gas tank to make it stop, right? Forensically, did they take the car apart? Did they know if there was sugar in the gas tank? Did they know if someone took off a spark plug? You know? So she could have easily been followed. She easily could have been followed. Debbie's long blonde wig was found by the road and the family were told there were skin scrapings under her fingernails. When DNA came out as a forensic tool in the mid-1990s, the family were hopeful that finally they could catch Debbie's killer. One sister was told that the DNA and any evidence had been lost. But Vicky, Debbie's younger sister, told me in 2015 that a police officer had told her that they had the killer's DNA. Obviously, if the killer's DNA exists, it could be a game-changer for this long, unsolved murder case. DNA potentially could be used to build a composite image of what the killer looks like now and even be added to GEDmatch, a public genealogical database in the United States where law enforcement has had incredible success in solving cold cases through family DNA. I called Langley RCMP to find out if there'd been any developments on Debbie's murder and if they could confirm whether or not they had the killer's DNA. Sergeant Parslow checked into this for me and said that they were not able to release any information on this investigation And all that she could tell me was that it is being investigated by the Langley Serious Crime Unit 
in coordination with E-Division Unsolved Homicide Unit. This is a frustrating but pretty typical response from the RCMP when asking about any unsolved murder cases. When Kim Newman woke up on the morning of February 22nd, she wasn't surprised to see that Debbie hadn't come home that night. Debbie would sometimes stay over with a friend if she was too tired to drive. But when Debbie still hadn't arrived home by that afternoon, Kim really started to worry. She called Scott, Debbie's boyfriend, to make sure that she wasn't with him. And when Scott told her that he hadn't seen or heard from her, they went to the police station. Here's Kim. Debbie was the type of person that even if she spent the night because, like, she didn't drink excessively or anything like that, but if she was too tired to drive home, if she spent the night at a girlfriend's place or something like that, she was always home by noon. And she would ring the buzzer and say, hi, it's me. She always said, hi, it's me. She never said it's Debbie. She didn't come home that day, and it was around 2 or 3 in the afternoon when Scott and I decided to go up to the police station. Kim suspected it might have been a former boyfriend of Debbie's, and a few days after her death, Kim and Scott decided to trace the route that Debbie would have taken home that night after she finished her shift at the OK Corral. They found the gas station where she'd stopped and also the restaurant where she ate. Well, somebody, I believe, did something to her car. Because I know that Scott and I followed her route home about a week or two later, right? We found the gas station where she'd stopped to put gas in the car. And her car was running fine. And then she stopped at, there was a restaurant there. I can't remember what it was called now. And uh, she stopped there. The waiter there said, when Scott and I went in there, he said she had come in. She was going to order something to eat. She looked really flustered. And then he said he turned around to do something. He turned around back and she was gone. And so were the two guys that were standing behind her. Did she seem like she knew them? The guy that I talked to said that she looked like she was nervous or scared. And then I guess she would have gone straight down um, King George Highway at number 10, taken a left, and then gone down to Fry's Corner where her car was found. Debbie's murder was reinvestigated in 2003. Dale Carr, a corporal with Langley RCMP at the time, said that police had received new information on the then 28-year-old cold case but declined to tell reporters what it was. Corporal Carr appealed to the public for information, saying that now nearly three decades had gone by, police hoped that someone who knew something back then and had kept quiet all this time may feel differently about speaking to police now. Debbie's older sister told me back in 2015 that around the time of the appeal, a man had phoned her father and told him he owned a farm near Fry's Corner in the area where Debbie's car was found. When he was cleaning out the horse barn, he said, he found a stack of their albums, Soft, Sweet and Country. This was weird, and even a little creepy. And Debbie's father immediately passed the tip on to police. Assuming that they did check it out, it was never revealed who had hidden the records, why they'd hidden the records, and if they'd had anything to do with Debbie's murder. While Debbie's case received a lot of attention in the media and generated more tips from the public, unfortunately nothing solid seems to have come out of it. To my knowledge, her case has not been reinvestigated 
since it was opened then back in 2003. When I interviewed Vicky Rowe in 2015, she told me that over the 40 years since her sister's murder, there have been at least 20 police officers assigned to Debbie's case. Each time a new detective was assigned to the case, which happened every two years or so, it felt, she said, like the family was starting all over again. Over the years, police have looked at serial killers Clifford Olson and Ted Bundy as possible suspects. When Gary Handlin was charged in December 2014 in the 1975 murder of 11-year-old Catherine Mary Herbert of Abbotsford and the 1978 murder of 12-year-old Monica Jack of Merritt, B.C., which he was eventually convicted for, the Rowe family thought that they might finally have some closure. Handlin, who would have been 27 at the time of Debbie's murder, was well known to police in the 1970s as a serial rapist. He was convicted of two brutal rapes in 1971 and again in 1978, and in 1979 he was sentenced to 18 years in jail. It's not clear where Handlin was living in the mid-1970s, but in 1978 he was living in New Westminster. It's certainly not inconceivable that he drank at the OK Corral. The family won't get closure until Debbie's murder is solved. The worst part, they say, is always wondering who did it. They've wondered about an older family friend who is infatuated with Debbie. They wondered if it was a current or an old boyfriend. They even wondered if it was one of the two police officers that has sometimes stopped Debbie on her way home to ask her out. They wondered if it was a stranger who followed Debbie from the bar, someone she'd met at Denny's when she stopped to get something to eat on the night that she was murdered, or if it was someone who had tampered with her car and waited until she broke down. Debbie's mother, Marion Rowe, told me back in 2015 that if the RCMP ever had any suspects, they didn't share their names with the family. She had asked for the file on her daughter's murder and the RCMP sent her a heavily redacted report which had nothing in it that she didn't already know. Vicky Rowe not only lost her sister, she lost a promising recording career. After Debbie died, she went on to make a various artist album, but it wasn't the same without her sister. Eventually, she got married, had kids and gave up on her dream. Marion Rowe, Debbie's mother, says that the murder remains a mystery to the family. She said to me, The thing is, why? She was coming home from work, her car wasn't working, her car stopped, and the next morning her car was found, and she was found dead. Why? Who did this? After Debbie was murdered in 1975, people actually told her family that she got what she deserved because she worked in a bar. Over the years, I've written about far too many young women who were murdered and then blamed for their own murder, and their families left not only to grieve for their loved ones, but have to put up with this kind of crap. Debbie was a beautiful, talented young woman who likely would have had an amazing musical career. Instead, her father died not knowing who murdered his daughter, her siblings remained gutted, and nearly half a century later, we're all still left to wonder. Who killed Debbie Rowe?
Debbie's murder happened just two months after the body of Vancouver resident Barbara Ann LaRoque, a 22-year-old Indigenous woman, was found murdered. She'd been choked to death by her own scarf. Barbara lived on East 3rd in Vancouver and was from Swan River, Manitoba. According to a couple of articles in the major dailies of the time, Barbara was a go-go dancer at a Vancouver nightclub called Syndicate City on Howe Street. One report said that a girl who may have been Barbara had been seen being dragged into a car outside the club where she worked. It's no wonder that police saw a connection between the murders. A story in the Vancouver Sun that ran in July 1976 lists 23 murders and included Barbara's and that of Gail Sandra Rogers, a 26-year-old go-go dancer at the Penthouse nightclub who went by the name Sam. She was reported missing after police found a carpet and a claw hammer stained with her blood in a home on West 5th Avenue in Vancouver. This was just a few days before Debbie Rowe was murdered. Gail's body was found a few weeks later in a creek bed just off the Cedar Sky Highway near Squamish. She was found wrapped in a blanket and tied at the ankles and knees. Her hands were tied behind her back and two pieces of clothing were tied around her neck. While Debbie Rowe's family had to put up with a lot of crap because their daughter served drinks in a bar, Barbara LaRoque was brutalised in the press. According to the Vancouver Sun story, police said that the murders of Gail Rogers and Barbara LaRoque were linked to the city's seamy drug culture and their association with prostitutes, strippers and drug addicts. The police theory was that Barbara's death, at least, was a result of a contract killing. Aaron Chapman is a Vancouver historian and the author of several books. His latest book is Vancouver After Dark, The Wild History of a City's Nightlife. Barbara LaRoque was killed in December 1974 and then Debbie Rowe was murdered two months later. Now, Barbara was a go-go dancer at the Syndicate and right. Debbie was a cocktail waitress at the OK Corral in the West. And right. Both these young women, they were 22 years old. They were both strangled and their bodies were both dumped quite near each other in Langley. Yeah. And so it was so interesting to me to read your book and find out that the OK Corral and Syndicate were owned by the same person. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a bit about how that all connected up? Marty Reutemann is this kind of interesting figure that ran the OK Corral and the Syndicate slash Club Zanzibar. You know, we talk about political correctness. He was sort of politically incorrect hmm. back in the 70s, you know, like... Just in terms of what he was doing at the Zanzibar slash syndicate, he had midget wrestling, he had jello wrestling, he had midgets driving around little motorcycles in the, in the club. Just, I mean, insane, quote-unquote, entertainment by his definition. His ads that he took out, you know, were sort of mm-hmm. the talk of the town. Like, Vancouver really hadn't seen anything like this. And I think Reutemann himself was, you know, he might have been a sort of sh- a shifty figure, but no more shifty than a lot of nightclub operators back then. Uh, but the clientele that he attracted, notoriously, he talked to any police, you know, who worked in that era of, you know, the 1970s in Vancouver. They all remember having, you know, organized crime of the city would go to places like the, the syndicate uh, and the penthouse as well. 
you've got Barbara from the syndicate at the end of 74. You've got Debbie Rowe in February from the OK Corral. Mm. And then also in February, there's another young woman called Gail Rogers, who was a dancer at the penthouse, who was mm-hmm. beaten to death and also dumped near Squamish. And so- I knew about that one, yeah. Because I couldn't find out too much about it but, or how long, necessarily, that she had worked there. And there was nothing but, about her at all. A death certificate said she was born in Vancouver, and and that was basically it. And you know, a couple of little newspaper articles. And I've tried to to find out from Squamish that's still unsolved, but I don't think they even know. Yeah, I guess it would be Squamish RCMP. That would be, I guess. Well, the body was dumped there, so I presume it would be Squamish. Yeah. But I just found it kind of a coincidence that three yeah, girls for sure. working for these clubs at the same, you know, within two months had yeah. been killed in similar... Well, she was beaten to death, but the other two were strangled and, and dumped. Reutemann, the, the club owner, he dies in, a, in an airplane accident near Bowen Island. I don't think he would have ever been a suspect, but who knows who was hanging out at these places. There's a shooting in the club right. um, in November 1971, uh, which is one of the most unbelievably sort of cinematic shootings I think I've ever read in Vancouver, <laughs> where a dancer was on stage and she was just finishing her act. It was at the end of the night. And dancing to a live band, probably a little trio, a little guitar, bass, and drum sort of combo, playing stripper music. And just as she was doing her, you know, last finale, or you know, maybe whipping off her brazier, and the drummer was doing a big sort of crashing the cymbals at the end. Right at that second, the guy had pulled a gun and shot somebody. It was timed with the the crash of the cymbals. It was almost like perfectly rehearsed. Or he waited until the very end of the act. Because people looked up when they heard the pop of the gun and mm. couldn't tell what had happened. Or it, was, it was part of the drum roll ending, you know. And uh, somebody looked over at the table next to them and the guy had been killed and, and the, the hitman walked out. And that's still unsolved today. 70s exotic dancing clubs were sort of a world unto themselves back then. Best as I can tell, the reason why the Zanzibar changed its name to the syndicate for a while, because the shooting at the time, I mean, it's sort of forgotten today, but at the time it was such a huge incident that even the club had to take out sort of ads saying that no guns are permitted at the Zanzibar oh. just to try and assure customers that it was safe to return. And I think they changed the name. And then they went back for some reason. And the choice of the name the syndicates, you know, which is a sort of an old mafia organized crime term. Reutemann used to sort of talk in these terms. It's, I don't think he was necessarily involved in organized crime himself, but he certainly liked to talk that kind of language. Well, what was the deal with the OK Corral? It sounds more like it was a country and western bar. Yeah, I don't know as much about that. It, they may have had the name before Roitman took it over. I'm not sure. It, it might have had a sort of a country and western theme, you know, the, along with whatever else they were doing there. You know, there was a, a sort of peak of country music in the 70s that a lot of bars sort of took over a little bit of that sort of style. Or, okay, because it's interesting that, you know, you sort of have a strip club and then you would have this sort of country and western bar. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I guess they just said, why not? In the reports about Barbara, who was a dancer at the syndicate, it called her a go-go dancer. Now, would that mm-hmm. be sort of a nice way of saying she was a stripper, or would that be those girls that used to dance in cages? I think it would be more like the girls that dance in cages. Mm. That's what you would have seen. Yeah, I think that's. I think she, if she was called a go-go dancer, that's exactly what she would have been doing. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eva coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. If you have any information about these murders please contact Langley RCMP at 604-532-3200 or if you wish to remain anonymous, call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or visit their website, solvecrime.ca. If you'd like more information about this and other major crimes, 
check out my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada, and please subscribe to the podcast. You can find more photos, credits and show notes on my website at evelazarus.com. I'm Eve Lazarus and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher.